Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rock it back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 19, The Evil Three, is the host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Michael Bailey. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you asking me to be on this one. Because um, uh, it was like out of nowhere on, on Twitter, like last, like around Christmas of last year, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> Probably. I do tend to plan ahead, but I know your Superman fandom. You are a veteran renowned Superman fan and podcaster. I had you on my other show, Digging for Kryptonite. We had a wonderful chat mm -hmm. about DC 1 million. You'll be back on that show not too long from now. And as I'm making my way through Adventures of Superman, I, I welcome any opportunity to connect with fellow Superman fans generally, but especially fans or even people who are newer to Adventures of Superman. It's interesting getting all of the different perspectives. So no, you were definitely someone I, I wanted to reach out to. And I, I think I I think I gave you a list of a few of the ones that were open, but however it shook out, this was the one that you gravitated towards pretty quickly. Yes. No, I I I this is not the best episode of the first season, but it is definitely my favorite for reasons that I'll be getting to during the course of this episode. Um, and I'll be actually referencing another, a previous episode of this show uh, when I do that too. So that that's a, uh, that's the worst tease ever because it's, it's not like they have to wait that long, but still. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely a memorable episode and I think we'll have a lot to say about it. So just to give the quick specs for this, like I said, season one, episode 19, January 23rd, 1953, written by Ben Preter, Peter Freeman, directed by Tommy Carr. And our synopsis, a fishing trip for Perry and Jim goes awry when they stay at the rundown Hotel Bayou, populated by three occupants trying to kill each other and find a hidden fortune. So in a moment, we'll give our overall impressions of the episode and then we'll go scene by scene. But I'll start the way I always start with these when we have a first time guest. What is your history, your, your experience with Adventures of Superman? And what sort of space has it occupied in your Superman fandom? 
Um, when I was a really little kid, I remember being it on the P- I remember it being on the PBS channel uh, of where I lived, uh, which was near Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, uh, and down the street, uh, the one of the guys that worked at the PBS station and his son and I were friends. And I, he had like a picture of the George Reeves Superman in his room. And I remember thinking that was odd. It was just like, who's that? <laughs> I mean, I, I knew Christopher Reeve. I didn't know who this other, and I remember seeing an episode when I was a really little kid, but I was more of a Batman fan at the time. I, uh, I made my old Testament to new Testament, uh, change much later in life. But after I started collecting the comics, in the late eighties and early nineties, I, uh, the, where we lived at that point, which was near Allentown PA, uh, we got channels from New York and Philadelphia. It was really weird. It was just how our cable package was set up. And one of those channels was channel nine W O R out of New York city. And for a few years, every Thanksgiving, they would have an adventures of Superman marathon hosted by Jack Larson. And that was the first time I actually sat down and watched episodes. And it was kind of neat because he would give like, not extensive, it wasn't like a a commentary, but he would give like a little introduction to the episode, some memory from, from filming it or why it was his favorite or why he liked it as much as he did. And between that and it coming on TV land soon after that, uh, I would occasionally dip in. It wasn't until like 2005, 2006 when the DVDs started coming out uh, that I really dove in. And that was when I was more, and like I am today, I'm more of a Superman omnivore. I will consume just about everything. Uh, so the space it occupies in my in my realm is that it's it's one of the building blocks of the run of comics, the the triangle era of comics that I love so much because most of the people that did the post-crisis Superman grew up on this show and the influences of the show into that version of Superman. It's, it's almost like I'm, I'm, I'm doing um, anthropology for the, for the triangle era <laughs> by watching this. Cause you see, especially in this first season, so much of what the Clark Kent was in the post-crisis era. Uh, and I just love it. I, 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 I get less um, wistful as the seasons go on. I, 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 I'm much more of a first season, second season, black and white fan. Uh, mainly because the first season is so much like the radio show, which makes sense because Robert Maxwell was the producer. Uh, but I just... It's it's an important building block of the Superman mythos. I mean, this is this was Superman for two decades, two and a half decades of people growing up. So you know, it's 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 important. So uh, it's it's like it's like on a pedestal, but I still think of it critically. So it's it's a weird whole mess in my head. But uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. No, I hear you, and that's a great point, and. It's something that I've come to appreciate now only only in these these past couple of years of doing both podcasts and going back through the Triangle Era comics on the other show and now doing this. And yeah, I mean, that confident, capable Clark that you see post-crisis, you see the template for it here in these episodes, mm-hmm. especially in this first season. And it's funny because, yes, I grew up with the Triangle Era, so that 
that has a lot to do with why that's my favorite. But I do now getting older and taking more of that critical look. I mean, there's a lot of value that I see in that kind of Clark. And so I'm sure that in in part accounts for why I've gravitated so much toward this show. Uh, so yeah, to kind of see that connection point that I had never really been aware existed uh, is really kind of fascinating. And then to your point about a holiday TV marathon, I've mentioned the Honeymooners a bunch of times on, on these episodes, but that New Year's Eve Mar- or New Year's Day marathon uh, that I've been watching since I was a little kid really cemented my fandom of that show. So yeah, there's a lot to be said for these, these holiday marathons. It can be very formative. Yeah, I, I will admit there there was a time where the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Turkey Day Marathon kind of was a little competition uh, when I got a little older. But it was it was more just the personal connection. Like, like I enjoyed the episodes because it was it was a hodgepodge. It wasn't like they were showing like all of season one. Uh, I the one I vividly remember watching was from what the color era was Great Caesar's Ghost, uh, which when you get to it is insane. Um, more in a crazy way, not like this episode is insane, <laughs> which is on a whole other level. But it it just gave me this appreciation and. Another thing, even though we're in the first season, uh, back in 2008, I got a, I had the chance to meet Noel Neal. And it was in a really weird way. A bunch of us from the homepage, Superman homepage, were just having breakfast. And like we were just hanging out afterwards. And suddenly she just appeared and sat with us for like five minutes uh, and chatted with us, her and her assistant, uh, Larry Ward, who the previous day helped me unload my car out of the hotel it's just metropolis illinois is a weird experience man it's it's like it, it, it like not weird in a bad way just kind of surreal uh but uh but just meeting her uh gave me a connection to the show as well uh even though phyllis Coates is my favorite um <laughs> Yeah, so running theme on on these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I've noticed that. I, I was I was worried that I was going to be the guy that was going to come on and and be like, I prefer Phyllis over Noel, and we all have to give that that uh, that exemption. It's like it's not that we don't like Noel Neal, and it's not like we don't see her place in the pantheon. But I just prefer Phyllis Coates. <laughs> Ironically, this is an episode. episode. Yeah, she's not not in this one. And obviously Clark and Superman are in it, but but very minimally. This is very much very much a Perry and Jimmy episode. Yes, yeah. And 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 because of that, uh it it reminds me of the radio show. Because this would be like the first the first chapter or two of one of the the radio serials of them just being off doing something. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Yeah, well, you know, let's get into it, but I will say just kind of, and that's a good segue to sort of our big picture outlook on this episode. But I was thinking about it. We've had now a little, a little run of very heavy Perry episodes with mystery and wax and drums of death. And this one, you know, there have been a few in, in kind of a, a concentrated burst where Perry's, had a fair amount to do, and specifically outside of the Daily Planet office. He has not been confined to his desk. So it's just been interesting, uh, especially seeing them kind of so close together. But yeah, I mean, I'll, let me toss it to you first. I mean, just big picture, what, what what are your overall impressions of this episode? And maybe hand in hand with that, why was this the one that you that you were specifically keen on doing? 
Um, the one, the reason why I was specifically keen on doing it is the first time I saw this episode, it completely blew me away of how bonkers it is. Rob O'Connor in a previous episode said that one of the episodes uh, in the future, not this one, but I think during the color era, uh, was like, what if David Lynch directed an episode of The Adventures of Superman? And I have literally been saying that about this show for like over t- this episode for over 10 years now, because uh, it, it it is literally like Blue Velvet David Lynch just stepped in, directed an episode of Superman, which would explain why Superman's not in it all that much. Um, so it, it so there's the crazy surreal quality of it. And I kind of dig that it's a Perry Jimmy story more than anything else. And seeing those two outside of the confines of the daily planet. Uh, and I'm, uh, the joke I want to make is, you know, if I had a nickel for every time Jimmy and Perry got in trouble while they went off fishing, well, I'd have two nickels, but that's still, that's still really weird to quote Dr. Doofenshmirtz. Uh, because this reminds me of the season three ender of Lois and Clark, where Perry and Jimmy are off fishing and they get held hostage. <laughs> That is a great that is a great connection point. Yeah, that doesn't bode well for them. And even just within the context of this series, just this season, I think the lesson is no Daily Planet staffer should take a vacation because whether it's no, Jimmy on no. Moose Island in the Haunted Lighthouse, Lois in Night of Terror, or the two of them in this one, it it never goes well. And you know, those those three episodes, you know, kind of are are all are all similar, you know. I felt especially in terms of the mood and the tone and and how mm-hmm. and how dark they are. And you know, we talk about that a lot in these first season episodes. How you know it's such a far cry from what we'll get even in season two, but especially compared to the color seasons. But but even within season one, there is a range of them, and there are a few that are just very you know very dark, very violent. I mean, in a minute, you know, we'll talk about that knockdown, drag out fight between <laughs> between yes. two of the evil three, and it's just like wow. I mean, this was. This was intense for ostensibly a kids show, but again, there are these few a few episodes in particular that like really jump out, and I feel like they're kind of those few are kind of all all of a piece there. I throw mystery and wax in there as well with the with the creepiness uh, as well. Yeah, there's definitely uh, a literal haunted house feeling to the to parts of this episode, especially where Jimmy is concerned. Uh, and I was really thinking of the haunted lighthouse. Uh, with this episode and how Jimmy, like, once again, we get to see uh, Jack Larson just act with his eyes uh, through <laughs> through the, the middle part of it. Uh, but overall, it's just it's just one of those things where I think they got about halfway through the script and said, you know, maybe we should put Superman in the Superman show because it's almost like he's superfluous until the very end. Uh but at the same time, in an, in an overall, that wasn't a negative, oddly enough. Agreed. Uh, it, it's kind of like a, a re, a, one of the more recent season three episodes of Superman and Lois, where Superman didn't show up at all, and I didn't even notice until someone pointed it out to me. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I agree. I had a similar reaction. It was so deep into the episode, I turned to my wife, like, oh, well, he's not in this one, but... It, I mean, obviously Clark is, but it, you know, it, it, it works. And I think similarly here, you don't, I mean, I, I don't know how, again, like, I don't know how the audience felt watching this in 1952, but certainly watching this now, I mean, no, I was, I was all in on the Perry and Jim story. And I think another, 
interesting distinction between this and some of the others where Superman has less involvement. Uh, you know, again, I think of something like Night of Terror where he does have a little more to do because he has to find which which hotel Lois is staying at, right? And it's, you know, yeah. that like, you know, farcical series of events where, you know, the note is on the desk and then it blows away and and all. But it's like, that's the tension. It's like he has to get the information. Once he has the information, everything will be fine. But it, there's that piece of it. Here, it's really just you know, when he ultimately calls Perry and Perry doesn't answer and then it's like, okay, I better go check this out. It's like, he knows where they are. Uh, so it's really not so much, yeah, about him figuring anything out. It's just, okay, once he takes that step, then we know we're going to be okay. But again, he doesn't know to do that until, until so late, but no, it was a great two-hander really with Perry and Jim. And so I guess for me, big picture, you know, just shout out to John Hamilton and Jack Larson. The two of them I thought were great together here. And it was, it was kind of fascinating especially this version of Perry White. Like you go to Lois and Clark, I totally buy that that Perry and Jimmy would be going on a, on a fishing trip together. Were you at all surprised that this Perry and this Jimmy were like off on a fishing trip? Yeah, especially since Jimmy didn't really seem to want to fish at all. Like I'm, I'm wondering what the conversation was at the office. It's just like, I'm going fishing. Jim, would you like to come with? Like, was he just... If, if I was going to headcanon it, it would be he was talking to Jimmy's mom and Jimmy's mom's like, you know, he doesn't really have a, a, a man in his life. And he's just like, well, I'll take him fishing. And maybe that was was like a sop to Jim's mom. So I could see that I could totally buy that or. Or it could be Jim's mom was going out of town because in one of the season two episodes, she goes out of town and Jim has to stay over at Clark's apartment because he can't stay home by himself, apparently. So, you know, it could have been something like that. I, but I kind of like the idea of the mom being involved. I mean, or, you know, it could be something where Perry mentions this tr- this trip and Jim is like, oh, I've never been fishing. And like Perry just like bites his head off. It's like, what? You've never been fishing? You're coming with me. <laughs> But, you know, in any event that, you know, they're off. So it's a, it's a great pairing again, great seeing both of them, but especially Perry out of the office in the field, in the middle of the action working together. And I, I think throughout the episode, uh, you know, this comes up a lot. I, this is not typically my favorite incarnation of Perry White, the overly gruff, but there have been episodes and this is another good example of them. So I might have to change my position because now there have been enough exceptions to to my general outlook on this Perry, where I'm like, okay, I might need to I might need to readjust a little bit, because there are a number of episodes, and this is one where you do see more sides to his character, and there are a number mm-hmm. of instances here where you really see how he is genuinely concerned for Jim. There's a lot of barking at Jim and bossing him around, but there are enough instances where he's genuinely concerned for the for, for the young man, uh, and and that goes a long way for me. So I really like seeing the different shades to to Perry generally and their dynamic as well. I also uh, liked Perry modeling the fashion of old men uh, for the next several decades with the high-waisted pants and the, the belt and the, the golf shirt. Uh, it was just like, this is, this is, this is Perry's casual outfit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a nice, that was a nice touch as well. So, yeah, no, it, it was great to see the two of them together. And I had mentioned to you off mic, I watched, so I watched the episode twice last night, uh, once with commentary from George Reeves biographer, Chuck Harder, I believe uh, was his name. Um, have you ever heard that, that commentary track? 
Uh, I it was like sev like back when I first bought the DVDs. Uh, I I actually watched mine through because uh, I because I love to triple and quadruple dip. Uh, I watched mine through. Uh, I bought it through iTunes um, so that I could watch it on my lunch break at work. Um, but uh, I haven't heard that commentary in years, so now I feel like I have let you down by not listening to it as well. No, not at all. <laughs> it's it's um it's a solid listen. There's nothing that I found. This is not a knock on it, but there's nothing that was tremendously uh, revelatory or anything like that. So <laughs> it's quite all right. Uh, I'll just mention kind of the main some of my main takeaways. I'll just kind of lay them out now, so that I'm not constantly saying, "Oh, in the commentary this and the commentary that." A lot of what uh, Harder talked about. Uh, really singing the praises of of Hamilton and Larson and what they brought to this episode. So that had a lot to do with it. Uh, he did make note, and this was an interesting point, and then I was, I had listened to the commentary first and then I watched it. And so I was more dialed into this, but he noted how many uh, long single takes there were without any cuts. Uh, you know, that first scene with Perry and Jim outside the bait shop, for example. I mean, it's really just kind of this, you know, this warner without any cuts. Uh, so that was interesting. And he talked a lot too about, just how the episode created atmosphere, uh, you know, the moody lighting, uh, the use of shadow uh, in that one fight in the basement with uh, Perry and Jim and, and a couple of the members of the Evil Three. And, of course, he mentioned what's what always comes up in the trivia for this episode, the springboard uh, that you see at the bottom of the frame in one of the shots when, uh, you know, when, when Superman's jumping. Uh, so that, that, of course, came up. And I guess the the most prevalent theme in the commentary <laughs> and this i guess ties in overall with what we're talking about with this episode in particular you know he kept bringing up what kids in 1952 who were watching this must have felt and thought as as the episode was unfolding uh, on on a number of levels you know again the the general lack of superman the violence again that initial fight that we you know that we touched on already uh, you know, just, just kind of everything that, that we'll, we'll get to, but that came up a lot, kind of like what kids watching this as it was originally airing must have thought, were they scared? <laughs> they have nightmares after, uh, so that, that was a lot, that was a lot of it. Yeah. I, I almost wish I had reached out to one of my best friends in high school. His mom was a Superman fan and I found this out like much later, like almost when I was moving away from Pennsylvania altogether. Uh, and she did tell me about, uh, her reactions to the stolen costume uh, makes me kind of wish that I would have reached out to her for this one. If she remembered this one as well, because I don't know kids in the fifties, man, they were worried about dying in a nuclear war. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how, how tough or, or how, how scared they would be by this. Uh, Cause, and also they were watching it on a much smaller screen. So the lighting would be completely different. And like the shot of the guy dressed as the ghost probably looked a lot spookier on a small, like eight inch television than it does like on your, on your, on your big screen or even on your phone. <laughs> Though I have to tell you, I mean, I didn't have nightmares or anything, but I did find it unsettling, especially the first time when he pops up in the window. <laughs> so I was like, you know, this is like, I gave them a lot of credit. I was like, you know, this, this is, this is pretty effective, but no, your point is well taken. I think it's, it's this weird effect. I think where it's, I think it's easy for us, you know, today uh, to look at these episodes because they they are so different than the type of Superman stories we get 
generally, but even to make a more direct comparison, you know, on television, right? It's just a very different, you know, style. Uh, and so I think it's easy to kind of be like, oh my God, like how would kids have reacted to this? But yeah, I mean, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't, you know, as, uh, as dramatic to them as, as, you know, we're imagining that it was. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there was a range of reactions, but I'll say for myself, cause I, as I've mentioned a bunch of times, you know, I only really watched these for the first time a few years ago and now I'm going through them again. And this was one of the episodes the first time around. I don't know that I really loved it. I didn't, I didn't hate it or dislike it or anything like that, but it, I don't know that it was really one of my favorites. And I, my opinion has really improved greatly uh, as I've gone back and, and really spending more time and settling in with them and, you know, something like this, it's just like, it's so out there, but it's so effective. And again, I think it just does a great job of creating that, that tension, that atmosphere and mystery as well. I mean, I was, I kept reminding myself, like, I know now where the episode is going, but as you're watching it unfold, it's like, what is going on here? <laughs> like with these three lunatics yes, at this absolutely. hotel. Absolutely. Like from the very first scene where it's just like, why are these two men trying to kill each other? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely. So I, again, I really think there's a lot about it that's really effective. It's a very tense, gripping episode. And it's, you know, I I, I don't know, maybe at the end of the season, I'll do a, a, a ranking or, some, or something, I don't know. But I feel like this will, this will be pretty, pretty high up there. I really, I enjoyed it a lot, especially upon, upon this rewatch. And I know we'll talk about it when we get to that, you know, one of those final scenes, but just as far as big takeaways and standout moments, when Superman grabs Macy Taylor and says, tell me where they are or I'll break every bone in your body. <laughs> this, and I, you know, this is the kind of Superman, not, not that I want every depiction of Superman to be this, but there's a lot about that kind of Superman, that golden age no nonsense mm-hmm. Superman that is very, very appealing. And man, did that stand out. Yeah, I, f- I feel exactly the same way. I, I, as I've gotten older, I have appreciated. Uh, and again, I think it's because of coming from a post-crisis background where he wasn't like violent, but he mixed it up and, 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 get a little threatening if he had to be, especially if it was someone he cared about. And when you like listen to the radio show and when you read the golden age comics where he's just chucking guys out of windows and like, you know, even in his very first appearance, he's taking this uh, lobbyist and he's just leaping around Washington, DC while this guy is scared to death. He's like, Oh, we, we, we hit the, we almost hit the electrical poles. It's just like, there's something about a Superman that is there for truth and justice and the American way and a better tomorrow. But there's also sometimes like, especially if his friends are involved, you just want to see this guy grab somebody and like, just go Batman on them basically. (laughs) Yeah. There's something very viscerally thrilling about it. And I, I think too, that we are talking about a more modestly powered Superman Mm-hmm. in the yeah. golden age and the comics and in this show. And and I think, I don't want to say you get away with more, but it just like, it plays differently because the more powerful, more godlike Superman doing this, I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if it, if it hits the same, but the idea of just this, you know, enhanced individual, <laughs> you know, mixing it up a little bit more the way he does here, 
Uh, there's just something very effective about it. So uh, yeah, this, and again, just the, the energy and the physicality uh, that, that George Reeves brought to it, it was just on full display uh, in that scene and it, it really stood out. And I, I wanted to mention that, especially you brought up the stolen costume <laughs> and obviously uh, Superman's decision at the end of that episode and people have varying uh, reactions to that. But again, like, this is a different era and a different, you know, a different flavor of Superman. Oh yeah, comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw yeah. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. Uh, oh, last thing before we get into our scene-by-scene, our scene, just our guest cast, the Evil Three here. So... Uh, we had uh, Cecile Elliott as Elsa, Reese Williams as Macy Taylor, and Jonathan Hale as the Colonel, who, of course, will come back in Panic in the Sky as the professor at the observatory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, always, always cool and interesting when uh, we see people pop up on the show in multiple roles, and especially, especially as wildly different roles. Like, we've had some of the heavies who have been different, you know, different bad guys in various episodes, but... Um, you know, definitely a, a, a wide disparity between the two characters that, that this actor played. Yeah, the guy playing Macy Taylor reminded me of the record producer from this. This is a weird reference to make. Uh, the Last Dragon with uh, Bruce Leroy and Shonuff. The 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 kind of the the. Shonuff was the heavy, but the there was this record producer who looks exactly like this guy that turns out to be the psychopathic villain at the end of the film. And man, did they cast a type. That guy, like, this dude looks scary in every scene he's in. 
He looks like the like if you saw him on the street, you would literally walk a little further away because there's obviously just the look on his face and his and the way he carried himself. Like this is a guy that knows how to play menacing very well. <laughs> yes, for sure. No, I, I agree with all of that. And 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 the actors playing Elsa, I mean, man, that that cackling laughter is so yes. is so unsettling. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, she yeah. played unhinged very well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, unhinged. Unhinged is a good word uh, for, for this. I, I, uh, a previous guest, Dan Greenfield from 13th Dimension, uh, he and I were talking off mic about episodes. And I think that's the exact word he used for, <laughs> for, for this one was, you know, Evil 3 is unhinged. Yeah, it's really, it's pretty wild, but it's it's a fun one. So, all right, let's launch into our scene by scene discussion of the evil three. So we open on the scene that we've mentioned before of Perry and Jim outside the bait shop. They've had a very, very unproductive day of fishing. They haven't caught anything and the bait shop is closed. And, uh, you know, uh, Jack Larson is really doing a lot of prop work uh, with those fishing rods. Yes. (laughs) Really making a meal of that. So much so that I know you, you were proposing an addendum to our fedora rating system for this episode. Oh, for this episode. Yeah. We, we, we may have to throw like fish, like, like three fedoras and a fishing pole or something in uh, as the rating. Um, The thing about this scene that struck me more than anything is that the, Jimmy Perry dynamic in other versions of the uh, live action and animated adaptations. Um, It's only really Lois and Clark and this show where Jimmy and Perry really have much to do with each other. Uh, Like in the Chris Reeve movies, like Perry's just constantly just yelling and giving Jimmy grief for one thing or another. They don't really have a relationship that you see. And it was the same in Superman Returns. Um, they shot him in the face in the Snyderverse. So I guess there was no chance of a relationship there. Uh, but Lois and Clark was more of a father son. This is more of a grandfather grandson like dynamic to me. Uh, just because Perry is so much older than this Jimmy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. And, you know, let me ask you this. Cause again, I've talked a lot about the kind of Perry I like, and I do like the more paternal, what, what kind of Perry white do you typically uh, enjoy the most? I, you know, and, and I've actually <laughs> not gotten into it with people because, you know, it's the internet and getting it into it with people over your opinions on Perry white, there, there's better ways to spend your time. Um, I hate, a barking orders at the staff, Perry White. Uh, we get a little bit of that here, but the overall, especially as the show softens, you know, it is more of a family dynamic. Uh, I much prefer, I keep banging on about this, the, the post-crisis Perry that had like real relationships with his reporters. Uh, and hands down, no questions asked, I, I I will never change my mind about this unless something better comes along. Lane Smith as Perry White is, you know, Jimmy. I I, I just want to do the the Perry White voice just for Rob O'Connor, uh, just so that he'll be amused by it. Um, assuming he's listening to this episode, which I which I would assume so. Um, I like to think no, so. I, I like <laughs> I like the Perry that is kind of a mentor 
to his reporters, uh, who's not there just to yell at them or, you know, give the, you know, give going back to Jackie Cooper, you know, it's just like, what am I, when am I paying you $40 a week when I should have you arrested for loitering? <laughs> Go get Kent Attal and get me a coffee. I mean, it's just like, that's their relationship. Whereas here you have a kind of a, just somebody who's just irascible most of the time. Uh, but you get the sense that he actually cares about the people. Now, to be fair in this show, there's like five people working at the daily planet at any given time, uh, just cause they weren't going to pay for extras if they didn't have to. Uh, so at least on Lois and Clark, you saw more people like milling about in the background, but I just, I just love that idea that he's kind of the dad of, of the group. Uh, I'm also in love with the idea that he knows that Clark is Superman and just never says anything about it. Um, I think he's too much of a, of a, old school reporter not to pick up on what's going on in front of him. Uh, but he'd never say anything because he'd have to do something about it, I think, with his ethics. So <laughs> if he never says it out loud, it never happened. Um, but yeah, I, that's why one of the reasons why I like this show is that you kind of get that grandpa Perry, uh, you know, yelling at people. But, you know, here in this thing, he was, he was, really trying to relax, but I think he was trying to teach Jimmy something and Jimmy was being a kid. He's just like complaining about the mosquitoes and smacking himself, uh, you know, and, and, and I love when Perry gets bitten and Jimmy's just like, ah, ah, ah. I mean, it's just, it was such a great dynamic. And the two, the two actors had great chemistry together too. Yeah. They really played that scene. Great. It, it, it was a lot of fun to watch and, I feel like their whole dynamic is, is is right there on display in that scene encapsulated. I agree with everything you said. I, I won't, you know, I won't repeat everything, but like yourself, my head cannon has always been that Perry knows for all the reasons that you just said. And I and similarly, I don't like the Perry who's just barking orders. Because I think that's it it just becomes one note. Like there's less there's less to kind of explore. And I understand, especially in a movie where Perry's not getting a ton of real estate in the film. Sometimes it's easy for that to happen. You know, we're on the, on the precipice of, of a new big screen incarnation. And I hope, I hope that we see a little bit of a different flavor this time around, you know, it would mm -hmm. be nice to kind of mix that up a little bit, but no, I agree with you. And, uh, yeah, no, the scene with them outside the bait shop, you know, Perry's laying the blame at, at the feet of Jimmy for not catching anything all day. And I love one of his lines. He's like a fishing rod, not a baseball bat. And it's like, what was Jimmy doing out there? <laughs> He's just like swatting at the water. I mean, I, I remember learning to fish when I was a kid and uh, maybe he was just swinging it too hard to cast the line. Um, that that's probably more accurate. Like he was just being like, like he wasn't having the finesse that, Perry wanted him to have. And it really depends also on what type of fishing they were doing. Were they like fly fishing? Were they, uh, were they just, you know, like dropping it in and waiting, waiting to get a bite? I mean, I, Perry strikes me as the guy that just wants to sit in the boat, drink something out of a thermos and just enjoy the quiet. Yes, for sure. So, you know, Perry doesn't want to drive back. He doesn't want to drive at night and he's not ready to give up on the fish just yet. So they're looking at the map. They find this hotel that's not too far away. 
that has a, a bass stream that they can fish. And so they, you know, they pack up and they head out to go to this hotel, which we then cut to next. And we see, you know, the sign is hanging and <laughs> the hotel bayou. And we launch, I mean, I love this. It's again, going back to the commentary and what we were saying before, it's like, I don't know what the initial reaction was, especially among the young people watching this back in the day. But it's like, again, it's just so crazy. It's like we launch right into Macy sitting there. And again, we'll learn their names as, as we move along. But, uh, you know, we see the colonel coming down the stairs with the sword and we see the little reflection and they just get into it. And Elsa's just watching and laughing. It's insane. Yeah, the he Macy's sitting there sleeping in a chair or dozing, but he has a mirror set up so that he can see behind him, which the like the second time I watched it, I was like, wait, wait, he has this up because he doesn't trust that this guy isn't going to try to kill him with a sword, which is also insane. But this was closer to the Civil War, uh, so that type of... Uh, that, that that type of weapon probably would have been more apt to be around. But yeah, they just start trying to murder each other in this. They're like tearing up the place, like furniture everywhere, throwing each other around, cutting from stuntmen to them. But it really seemed to be like them because it's like they didn't really want to pay for the stuntmen, uh, which made me feel kind of bad for the older actor having <laughs> to get thrown to the ground as he did. And yeah, that cackle... And she's just like, this is a Rob Zombie movie. This is David Lynch. This is this is these people's lives, and it happens every day. It seems like. Yes, <laughs> I know. I know. That's kind of that's the other wrinkle with all of this. Because again, as, as we'll look, and that's the other thing too. It's it takes a while for all of this to really unfold and to figure out exactly what's going on. That there's this treasure that they're looking for and everything. I mean, we get a key piece of information pretty, pretty shortly, but you know, and the whole picture doesn't come into focus until later. And, and I, I agree. It's like that. Yeah. The actors slash some people, but how that, that just the, the physicality of that scene and the choreography of it was really impressive. I mean, you really, you really felt those fisticuffs, but Elsa laughing just adds this, <laughs> this whole other layer to it. Because, you know, you take that out of it. And, okay, it's like this intense fist fight between these two. And it's like, what's going on? But you throw in this woman in a wheelchair at the top of the stairs, just like laughing her head off at this. Which, it's funny because when we get to, not to not to nitpick, but when we get to the, you know, we get later in, in the episode, Elsa is the one who proves to have a conscience. Mm-hmm. At least to some extent. Uh so I don't know. Her reaction here was a little interesting, or maybe she's really just is over these two guys and she's, she's happy because she's hoping that the, <laughs> well, one will one take will out the other. The other. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and there's no electricity in the place. So she doesn't have like a radio to listen to or a television to watch. So this is, this is the evening's entertainment. <laughs> yes. No, no, that is a good point. It, it is something to do. So, I mean, these guys are just going at it until, <laughs> until they hear the car outside and then they're like, they quickly, which is great. Like they quickly, you know, the front comes up and they're starting to try to fix the furniture and, uh, and, you know, put up, put up this facade. Yeah. This is, this is where it is good that Perry explains that, you know, his, 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 his spider sense is tingling, uh, or his new sense is tingling because if I walked into a hotel and the front room was trashed and they told me there was no electricity, I'm not staying there. (laughs) 
Well, yes. So, well, it's so it's so funny as this unfolds because they walk in and you know Perry and Jim remark about how the hotel has seen better days, but it's like, yeah, that's an understatement. I mean, this place is just trashed. And then Macy, you know, gives all of these reasons why they shouldn't stay there. He's like, you really want to go to this other place up the road? He's like, we have no electricity, no food, no help. Um, the stream is fished out. It's like reason after reason why you would not want to stay here. And Perry just knocks them all down. And he's like, well, you know, with the food, he's like, well, we had a big dinner in town. And Jim's like, what about breakfast? He goes, we'll catch fish. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's almost like, shut up. <laughs> Watch and learn kid. This is how the, this is the adults are now talking. I know. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He's, he, you know, he has the, the phrase he'll use a little bit later, uh, is the nose for news, right? He knows something is up and he's going to, he's going to pursue this. But, you know, again, it comes off as the stubbornness as he's, as he's dealing with the, the hotel manager and what a memory Perry has. He's like, I was here seven years ago. I think you were a desk clerk then. And he's like, yeah, like (laughs) I own the place now. My uncle, George Taylor, the previous, owner manager has has drowned and that i guess of course gets perry's uh, antenna up. but george taylor did you enjoy that nod uh i do not know if that is a purposeful easter egg but since george taylor was the first editor of the daily star uh and the first named editor of the superman books i don't know if that was on purpose or not um so in my head canon george taylor what worked at the daily planet before Perry, with Perry, when Perry was just a reporter, and then he retired to open this, uh, you know, like hotel and, and fishing spot, and that's why Perry would go and visit there every once in a while to see his old friend. I like that. All right, that's quite the backstory. I like that. I, I had the same thought you did. I was like, was this purposeful? And gun to my head, I feel like it was just a coincidence, but maybe, yeah, maybe. Th- yeah, it's it, it. It. I am ninety eight percent. This was just they just picked a name out of a hat, um, and, and just you know George being a common name, you know George Taylor. It's it's a, it's a strong sounding name too. But uh, but yeah, it was. Uh, I remember years ago on another show, I was talking about this episode, and my buddy, uh, Bob Fisher, who is uh, was a contemporary. He like watched the later seasons of the show when he was a kid. Uh, and he's a huge Superman guy and he had never put it together before. So it was like one of those experiences where somebody, it like blows their mind that he never like put two and two together on it. (laughs) But but yeah, it was just, I, I, every time I hear that, I'm like, that's not on purpose. Uh, it's not like today where they probably weren't digging through old Superman comics, uh, to, to get their story ideas. I mean, it was only in the later seasons when Whitney Ellsworth and, Mort Wessinger were the ones right, you know, coming up with the story ideas where they started actually like adapting comics. Um, so yeah, it's not like today where like every episode of Superman and Lois, you're sitting there with a pad and pencil and writing down everything and wondering if it's an Easter egg or not. Um, and sometimes it is. And sometimes it's just a coincidence. Yes. No, it's, it's very true. Yeah. I, I suspect that was ultimately what happened here, but in any event, accident or not, it's a nice, uh, a nice little connection point to have there. So, again, Perry's adamant on staying. Jim just wants to get out of there, but Perry, of course, gets his way. Tells Jim to register them. Well, he goes out to the car, 
Now, of course, this prompted me to search right before we sat down to do this. When was the car phone invented? But 1946, according to my my quick, very quick Google search. So it tracks. That yeah, he- no, I was I was thinking of that, too, that that technology because phone technology was so weird back then. Anyways, you didn't call numbers. You called an operator and they connected you. Uh, and it was like it was like letters and numbers together. Yes. Uh, before the more direct way of calling. And man, they used that stock footage of an operator plugging things in and, you know, overdubbing that uh, pretty extensively through this episode. But yeah, when he got when he got out of his car phone, I'm like, man, Perry's got some money. That's uh, that probably wasn't cheap back then. <laughs> I, I know. I think it was in the commentary where where he mentioned, uh, you know, he called it like a reporter car. So it's like, yeah, if this is an official Daily Planet vehicle, uh, you know, maybe that makes it even more believable that they would have invested in this kind of equipment, this this technology in the car. But it was definitely, yeah. I mean, the first time I watched, I was like, wow, like the car phone. That's uh, very very advanced for the early fifties. But yeah, I mean, the technology existed, and you know, I, I guess I can buy, I can buy Perry would have equipped one of the Daily Planet vehicles, or even his own personal vehicle. It's, you know, I want to put it past him to make sure he, he, he yeah. can call in. Perry seems keen on using company um, company resources uh, for his own personal use on a on a regular basis. I, I, I call back to him staying at the, 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 what was that place called where he the had press, like his little the apartment? The press club, yeah. The press club where, where he apparently has a suite. <laughs> I'm still so. trying, man. Listen, I'm still trying to make sense of that. I, I you know, <laughs> it's just like, what was the, what, what is, does he just, I, I, you know, it's like, does he live there? And even beyond that, he's, it does, I don't mean to rehash this, but it's like, he's ordering up the coffee and sandwich. It's like two in the morning. There doesn't seem to be breaking news. What is his deal? <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point about how, how Perry operates. So <laughs> but, he's using a company car to go fishing. Yes. Yeah. Apparently. Well, good going, Perry. <laughs> you know, it all it all pays off because now he's he's onto a story, and so he calls the Daily Planet, and at last, George Reeves appears as Clark, who's just about to head out for the night when he gets the call. My f- my favorite bit of acting in this entire episode is the annoyed look on George Reeves's face when the phone rings when he's just just about out the door because man, everybody can relate to that. You're about you're trying to close up, you're trying to get done with the day. And then something comes up and you know you're going to be stuck there for another 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> yes. I mean, he he flips pretty quickly when he knows it's Perry. He seems genuinely yeah. happy to hear from him. But mm-hmm. yeah, I know that was, I clocked that too. And it's this great reaction and very much, very much in keeping with this impatient, easily annoyed season one Clark, which is great. What do you think he was going off to do for the evening? Um, He wasn't like loosening his tie and taking his glasses off. So I'm assuming he was just heading out for the evening. Um, probably going to go get some dinner. Maybe he's got like 50 billion friends in Metropolis that he's known for decades, despite the fact that he's only lived there for a year. Um, so it could be any one of that. Uh, in, in talking also about flipping, I like how he's really, he goes from annoyed to really excited to, Oh, the chief's onto something that 
you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention to this now. This is this is this is where my night's heading. I've figured out what I'm gonna do for the evening, just to see. Because if Perry thinks something's up, something's up. Yes. Yeah. You get you know they cover a lot of ground in in the short scene here, but uh, yeah, I agree. Probably go, going off to grab a bite, maybe meet up with Candy. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. But you're right. He's got he's got quite the the pool of friends, uh, apparently, to draw from, you know, or maybe a quick flight over to Germany to see one of his best friends, Colonel Redding. It, it could be anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, just to have, you know, some some authentic German food uh, with, with with all of these uh, with that or, um, you know, eventually he visits London. So maybe he's got friends there, too. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll never know. But the private life of Clark Kent continues to uh, to, to interest me. But uh, you know, we get so we get some more information here where Perry's like, uh, you know, this guy told us George Taylor drowned, but I remember hearing that he disappeared. And so, you know, Perry's, you know, Perry wants Clark to look into the, the morgue files. I think to try to figure out, um, you know, about this disappearance of George Taylor, and tells Clark to call him back in an hour. Uh, and while this is happening uh, inside, we have Macy trying to scare poor Jim off uh, with a ghost story. <laughs> Tells him that the ghost of George has been haunting the hotel, and that's why no one has stayed there, and that's why he doesn't want them to stay. And of course, Jim Jim buys into that. I, I am curious if the people who would later like do Scooby Doo episodes would look at Jim here as how to how to characterize Shaggy when he's hearing something, because. Macy clocks Jimmy as somebody he can manipulate pretty quick. <laughs> and he's just like, well, his ghost is around here. And Jimmy's like, really? And I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, you've, you've, you've gone down this road before. <laughs> yes, I know. That's, <laughs> that's a good point. It's like even just in the context of this season, you, you've, you've been in this situation before. It's also... Not not to pick on poor Jim, but it's just like, I know he's meant to be this kid, but it's like, he's not 12. I mean, he's I feel like he should be old enough. And again, I, I don't mean to always go back to this, but again, the bit that we'll get to in a later episode where again, he can't stay home by himself while his mother's away. And it's, I, was, I know it was a different time and he's still young, but it's like, again, he's not, he's, he's, again, he's not 12 or 13 here, so... Uh, you know, that's okay. We have to have our episode here and, and you get this nice contrast and the tension between Perry and Jim and, and, and all of that. But I know it, it is, it is pretty funny. I love when Perry comes in, uh, and, and is going to sign them in and he's looking for a pen, right? And of course he doesn't find one and Macy doesn't offer one and he just pulls one out himself and signs them in and they're off. Yeah. It's it's odd the thoughts you have. I'm like a man of that era would have a pen on him. He would he would have he would have like a pen, a handkerchief, probably a pocket knife, you know, just just the things. Because uh, I, I was thinking of how formal things were, uh, especially like in like the the thirties and the forties and the fifties. You know, like men like Clark had a hat, and to talk on the phone, Clark had to take his hat back off. So. <laughs> There were there were social mores that we have just completely lost today, where people go out in gym shorts and flip flops, uh, you know, you know, to to, to socialize. So, but again, old men really haven't changed uh, that significantly in the past sixty years. So he would have probably a nice, not only a pen, a nice pen. <laughs> yes, 
No, for sure. Probably an official Daily Planet pen uh, yeah. that, he, that he carries with him. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, on the subject of of just the times and what people wore, you know, we, we had a lot of fun with this in a previous episode, and No Holds Barred, the wrestling one, where Clark is in his apartment wearing his dress shirt and pants and a bathrobe over it. And, you know, we talked about it a lot, but... I, I don't know. Just as a, as a as a follow up here, I don't know if you remember that episode specifically, but just yep. kind of that. Does that track? I mean, like that just seems so odd to me, regardless of the times. Like at least he would take the jacket off and put the robe on. You know, like the, the dressing gown. I think he did. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think I think the jacket was off. I think it was the dress shirt and pants, and then the robe over it. Yeah, that, that 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 that's always been weird to me. But then you like read old Batman comics, and that's what Bruce Wayne pretty much wore through the fifties and sixties, uh, or the forties and fifties when he was at home. He was always like, you know, he's always in his dressing gown and an ascot. Um, now I'm a little disappointed that Clark didn't have an ascot. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just really weird what what you ought to do. Um, what you ought to wear, how you ought, you know, like, you know, the, the, the thing about the hat and where you wear the hat and where you take the hat off. And even in, 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 in an even more like a uh, minute sense, like when you button your jacket and, and when you're allowed to unbutton the jacket, like there's so living in the fifties must've been exhausting just purely on that level. Yeah, no, for sure. It, well, it's funny when we talk about how things are so much more relaxed. It's like I never, I would never used to wear like, sweatpants out, you know, in the house, mm-hmm. of course. But if I was going out anywhere, I would put on jeans. You know, again, nothing, you know, <laughs> formal, but just like jeans. But between over the past few years, between fatherhood and the pandemic, that rule has gone out the window. <laughs> it's just like uh, you know, again, depending on on the circumstance, I wouldn't wear sweatpants anywhere. But it's like now. You know, I, I will run an errand in them. So, uh, yeah, a far cry from uh, from what we see on the show. And, and, and definitely no robe over uh, full dress clothes. <laughs> so, well, speaking of clothing, now we cut to Perry and Jim unpacking in their room and, and having this little conference here. And, you know, Perry, you know, kind of chastising him. It's like, you got to cultivate your nose for news. Something's up here. Uh, we, we get a critical piece of information where... Uh, he talks about how he had heard George Taylor didn't trust banks, right? So mm-hmm. now we get this idea that there's money. There's money somewhere in the hotel. Uh, and it's in this scene where <laughs> where we get the first sighting of the quote-unquote ghost, uh, Macy, just dressed up and, you know, he's got a sheet over his head and you just see his, the, 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 the face and he pops up in the window. And, and, and poor Jim is just aghast at this sight. And uh, like I said, it, it got me a little bit. I found it. A little unsettling is, is how I would describe it, but I definitely thought that it was was effective, and especially for the more gullible Jim Olson, I I could under I could see how he would react so strongly to that. Yeah, the the not trusting banks thing uh, is obviously probably a holdover from the depression uh, when the banking system completely failed. My my wife's grandfather, uh, her mom once told me that he actually froze put in the freezer like hundred dollar bills and put them in like the boards of the house 
just so that they're there so that if something happens and he needs money, he can get to them quickly uh, because he lived through the depression when, you know, as I hear every day in my, in my day job, like everyone's just like, do you accept cash? And it, it's a, you know, it's kind of almost a for it's getting to be kind of a foreign concept because uh, we use our, our cards our debit cards, especially to pay for everything. Um, yeah, there, there was a point where even when things got better financially, there were people that just didn't trust it. So it actually made for a more realistic setup for the story like that he kept all his cash somewhere and that his nephew basically was just like, I'm going to get that money. Um, my favorite shot of the ghost is just not the full shot, which is, which was weird. I got to admit, I was just like, that is creepy. Oh God. But when he's just in the window, I'm like, and there's nothing but black behind him. I'm like, okay, I could see it being, you know, like if, if you're, we got to put ourselves in Jim's position. He is in a hotel in the middle of nowhere that has no electricity. Uh, like, like they are probably have like gas lanterns in the room and that is the only lighting. And suddenly some face pops up in, in the window that would scare the hell out of you. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, a couple of, a couple of like quick personal follow-ups. So as far as the whole cash thing, I mean, yeah, for one thing, I, you know, I, I can't imagine like living through the depression and what that, um, you know, what, what that would trigger in terms of your practices. So yeah, the fact that someone would do what, you know, what you described or what we see in this episode, I, fair enough. Hey. Um, and I think too about, you know, as I've talked about many times, like I worked at my local comic shop for many years. Um, but you know, the store has been closed now eight years and, and I was, I pretty much hadn't been working there for a couple of years prior to that. So like a good decade since I was in that retail space and, you know, at the time it was probably more cards than cash at that point. Uh, but still a lot of, like there was still a lot of cash coming through the store. But again, we're talking like a decade on. So it's like, I, you know, I'm, I, I can imagine how, like how rare it is. And I know certainly for, for my own practices, how it's exceedingly rare that I'm pulling out cash. And a buddy of mine, uh, he's told me the story, like he was at the Apple store buying a new iPad or whatever. And, and he went to pay with cash and like, they didn't know what to do with it. Like it was a whole, it was a whole thing. They had to get other people involved because like, nobody does it. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, all, all of that, you know, all of that tracks and, um, and yeah, poor Jim's reaction. Uh, I think that was pretty much it as far as that scene, unless there's anything else that, that comes to your mind. No, I think, I think we, we've got to move on to Jimmy, uh, giving something a little something for the ladies uh, for a good five minutes. I was just like, wow, Jim's got abs. I, uh, I did not see that happening. <laughs> yeah. He looks, he looked great. So, you know, sometime later and we see him wandering out into the hallway and he hears Elsa, Elsa's cackling, mm-hmm. uh, Elsa's cackling. And so he comes out and he's you know very out of sorts. And uh, yeah, he's got his jacket, um, on and, and nothing else. So it was, you know, bear, you know, bear, bear torso underneath and yeah, young, young Jack Larson, good for him. And, you know, and another one of these very long takes as he's investigating and then, you know, Perry comes out and tries to calm him down. And that's where you get, you know, you do get that look when Perry is heading back into his room after he sent Jim to go back to sleep and, you know, he turns back and he looks and, 
just those little moments, like again, really, really went a long way to showing the the care and concern that he has. And it's not just barking at this kid. Yeah. And, and I really had to decide when I was watching it this time, are the shots too long or is it really just creating that atmosphere? Because I remember a couple of years ago, I was watching uh, for a podcast appearance. I was watching an episode of the $6 million man. And there were just like shots of people like a car driving and it seemed to go on forever and it just padded out the episode. And I was wondering, are we seeing that here? And I ultimately fell on no, what, what they're doing in, in a really film noir kind of way is that they're making you uncomfortable with the lighting like when he walks into the other room through the the joining doors like the lighting in that room i mean it looks like a set but at the same time it looks like if you were in a house that had no electricity and somebody went into a dark closet and suddenly there's just this one light source in that room and it really just added to like the what is going on here feeling to the overall plot like yeah, we're getting a little horror because they're faking a ghost because, you know, it's obvious that it's not a ghost because you've seen this guy. Um, but no, I ultimately fell on that all of the long shots really just go a long way for the atmosphere of the episode. Uh, you, you wouldn't have the, like, like every episode has its own kind of feeling uh, and it's in its own, I, I, I'm trying to not use the word atmosphere again, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It's just like, you know, no holds bar, no holds barred, for example, a lot of, a lot of action, a lot of people moving around, uh, you know, even when they're just sitting there, they're, they're fidgeting. Whereas here it's just long, slow shots, uh, while the mystery is unfolding before Jim and, and Perry. Yeah, it, it definitely feels very methodical and, and purposeful. And, and I think it contributes to, to the overall effect. You know, one thing I want to ask you is, does Perry's reaction to Jim track for you, especially when it comes to the laughter that Jim is hearing? Because I'm trying to reconcile this, because on the one hand, Perry knows something is up with this place and with these people, and he's all about having this nose for news, yet he is so, so quick to dismiss what Jim is perceiving. And it's one thing with the ghost, right? I mean, ironically, despite the fact that he's always saying great Caesar's ghost, apparently doesn't believe in ghosts, but it's like, okay. So he knows that, you know, Perry knows that Jim hasn't actually seen a ghost, but does it not occur to him? Like, well, he's seeing something. They're showing him something. And then even more so with this laughter. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Just what was your reaction to that? Did that track for you? Uh, it actually did because I think at this point, Perry has just almost given up on Jimmy. <laughs> like he, he, he's, he's, and, and I don't mean that in like a, a mean way. I just think Perry is all, but shut up. Something's going on when they're in front of Macy. So when they're having the discussion in the next scene where he's just like, you have no nose for news. It's just, to me, it's just Perry like, Oh, this kid is just not getting it. He is just, and he's just lost his patience with it. But there's also kind of a paternal, like when he wait, when he when he's shaking him in the bed, 
Like it's almost like a grandpa coming to like wake up their grandchild who's having a nightmare feeling to it as well. So it's there's a lot of really complicated feelings between these two characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually one of the things one other item from the commentary that that Chuck Harder was talking about which was um that he wished the show in subsequent seasons had further explored and developed the dynamic between the two of them, but that it mostly reverted to Perry behind the office, behind the desk, you know, kind of barking orders sort of thing, you know, with, with Jim. And uh, again, I've not seen all of the color episodes. I've seen a bunch, but that's, I, I'll kind of keep an eye on that as I move forward. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that does feel like a kind of a missed opportunity. And, and uh, one of the, one of the reasons for that, um, was as they got later into the show, apparently Hamilton started having more problems remembering his lines. So they put him in a scene where the script could be on pages in front of him. Uh, So I think that's why they moved him more behind the desk because then he could look down and remember his lines easier than him being out in the field. Um, If I'm remembering... I forget where I read that, but that was, that did come up in some of the various books that I've read on the history of Superman. Um, Cause John Hamilton was considerably older than all of the other cast members uh, right. in, in the, in this show. I mean, he was, he was in the Maltese Falcon. And if you've ever seen the Maltese Falcon, he looks ex- almost exactly like he does uh, like, you know, f- 10 years earlier than, than, than this. Well, what year did the Maltese Falcon come out? Am I tripping over myself there? Doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I don't know. Offhand, I'm sorry. I'm not any help on, on that front there. No, 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 that, that's, that's okay. I'm, I'm tangenting where, where we don't really need to go, but uh, I think that's probably between that and the way the show was structured towards the end. Uh, they weren't, into any character development whatsoever. It was let's shoot all of the daily planet episodes. Now, then we're going to shoot all of these episodes all at once. So it's, it's one of those things where we always want that kind of thing, but on this show, it just was never going to happen. No, I know it's true. And what you were saying about the remembering the lines and all that, that, uh, that, that sounds familiar. So that all tracks. And I guess that helps account for it on top of everything else in terms of what, you know, where the show's focus was or wasn't. So, you know, it's fine. Oh, one other thing though, and I meant to say this before with, uh, just with, with Jim and how, and how out of sorts and scared he is and, and gullible. Um, I remember I took a work trip. This is now going back almost 10 years, crazy enough. But so I used to work in law school admissions and we would do these recruiting trips, uh, to colleges across the country. And there was this upstate swing, upstate New York, uh, swing of recruiting trips. And, uh, the first year I was in admissions, I did this trip and drove to all of the places. So it was like Binghamton, Ithaca, and so on. Uh, and we had a travel agent who uh, we worked with who, who booked everything. And uh, I should have just taken matters into my own hands, but she, she booked me in all these hotels. And one of them, this was in Hamilton. Oh, funny enough, John Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton, New York. Uh, Colgate College or Colgate University. That was the That was the school. And so the, this hotel was, it was just like this like little cabin, I, I, I guess is a, the best way to describe it, but in just like this very remote wooded area. And 
you know, my, my background, like I've never done camping. Like that's like, I don't really have that frame of reference. So this was very different than the type of hotel experience like I was used to. And I was fine, but I remember being in this room and it was just so desolate. And it was just like this little tube TV. And it was, I was just like, I can't wait until it's light so I can get the hell out of here. And so I don't know that like kind of, you know, putting myself in those shoes and thinking about Jim, I, I do, I do feel for the kid. I do feel for the kid. <laughs> you realize how musty that room must be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I literally would sleep in my clothes on top of the blankets. Uh, I, 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 because God knows when those sheets have been washed. <laughs> yeah. If they have been washed in the past five, seven years. So I, I just, I just, when I was watching it, everything felt like it had a film on it. <laughs> if you've ever been in one of those places where the power has been out for a really long time and like just the, the condensation of just humidity just has its effect on everything in the room. That That's, they did a very good job of making me feel that. I don't know if that was their purpose or that was just all in my head, but, uh, yeah, I, I get exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, I, I do get Jim. And, you know, you mentioned where, where Perry's sitting on the bed with him. And, and right before that, you know, what startles Jim awake is, you know, the hands. This was, I feel like this was very effective and very off-putting where you, you just see the hands like come up towards Jim and like slap him awake. Uh, and then again, you get another of those scenes between the two of them with, uh, you know, with, again, you know, sort of this, this you know, disbelief, trying, you know, trying to calm Jim down, but, 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 but also concern. And you really feel Jim's like desperation here is he's like, no, I'm, you know, cause Perry's like, oh, you were dreaming. And he's like, no, like honest, like I was awake. Uh, so yeah, like they're really, really going through it. And, and it was that scene. That was the only scene where I was just like, Perry, how did you not see that guy in the, in the adjoining rooms? <laughs> like I could see the window. Like I could see that. Cause he ducks out of way. Perry turns around. There's nobody in the window and he doesn't walk walk over to the window to look down. But there is very little time from that guy ducking into that adjoining hallway thing and supposedly opening up a door that seemed to be kind of difficult to open and Perry coming in and not seeing anything. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I'm going to say maybe there's some trick to opening it more quickly, more easily that Mm -hmm. someone who lives there knows, but that they did not, you know, I'll I'll give them that benefit of the doubt, but yeah, they, 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 that's a good no prize. No, I'll, 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 I'll go with that. (laughs) But so they find this passageway to the basement and go down to investigate. And uh, again, as far as other bits of trivia that came up in the commentary track, you know, when they go down into the basement, they find a skeleton. Ultimately we learned the skeleton of George Taylor chained to a wall and apparently in the first broadcast of this episode that was cut out the skeleton it was deemed too um too dark for the for the children yeah there there were um when kellogg's came on as the sponsor uh there were a number of episodes where they wanted things to be cut out um that was one of them. Another is when uh, we'll, we'll get to it later. But uh, when when Elsa is pushed down the stairs, they wanted that cut out. And apparently, Robert Maxwell was like, "I am not cutting anything," because uh, they had already gone to negatives. And it, it's one of those things where if you're not a filmmaker, you don't understand that you can't go in at that stage to make edits because 
you, you can't make a dupe of a dupe basically, I think is what the book said. Um, but yeah, that, that whole thing, talk about a really effective set. That whole basement just freaked me out. And then you realize they left him down there to die, which means he starved to death, which is extremely painful. Uh, just going into the dehydration alone. And I'm like, wow. Like, they had to put up with probably him screaming for several days before he finally died. And then they just let him rot. So did they just not go down there for like a couple months? Because it would have stank. <laughs> I, yeah, well, especially with no electricity. But you know, I was like, yeah, I feel like they just, that was it. I mean, I also, not to, I'm not blaming the victim here, the, the murder victim, but it's like, you know, he, I mean, this guy held out, like would not, clearly didn't reveal the location of this fortune. It, it, it cost him his life. But yeah, I mean, you really, see, you know, that's the thing is you, as you're watching this and obviously you see that these, the evil three, they live up to their name throughout the episode. But, but here in particular, it's one thing to, all right, see that fight at the beginning or, you know, the old lady's laughing and, you know, you don't know what to make of all of this, but yeah, I mean, this is very, very dark, very grim and, and very evil. I mean, yeah, that's an absolutely brutal way to... Uh, to you know, to to end somebody. So yeah, that was that was rough. That was rough. But they find that, and then Macy and the Colonel come down. They have this fight again. This we see the use of shadow here, where you see the you know the the, the fight unfolding, uh, you know, via the shadows, which was really cool. And uh, they knock out they knock out Perry and Jim. Uh, I, I do like when when Elsa shows up. She's got a gun. I'm assuming it's unloaded, and that they know it's unloaded but she seems to be like holding it at them anyways. So I'm get, I'm just taking from their nonchalant, like, like, like if this old lady had a loaded gun, I think both of them would be like, Whoa, okay, let's talk about this. But the fact that they're just like, Nope, we're going to go take care of this. It's just like, okay, that, um, that gun's not loaded and they're not scared of this woman. (laughs) That's a good point. Now that tracks, I would, I would go with that. I would go with that. But yeah, I mean, this is when you see, and you, do you, does this, does this track as genuine for you that she has these, these pangs of guilt and, and of conscience where she's like, I don't want more, I don't want more blood on my hands. That, and I think she just wants out of this situation. And these are like two people, I think on some level she realizes because they're poking their noses around. I'm sure, like, I'm sure people stopped. Um, Desperate people, I'm assuming, because if I walked up to a hotel and the sign was hanging, I'd be like, yeah, we're going down the road. (laughs) Um, There is probably a Hojo's down the street and we're going to stay there and have some really bad clam strips in the uh, in the restaurant. Um, But I'm sure there were people that were just like, you know, well, we have no electricity and they just kept turning people away and turning people away. Perry seems to actually be like trying to investigate what happens and you see her like, she's not all there for one thing. Uh, You see her like make that decision. Like, okay, I'll tell you, but you're not going to, you're not going to double cross me. Right. And it's almost sad, but I think she sees them as a way out. Uh, And then it just, doesn't turn out it, it does turn out to be that way but not in the way she thinks it's going to happen <laughs> right yeah i mean we'll get to it but yeah she sees this as you know 
they're going to help her and they'll split the loot and they'll, you know, and they'll all be off. And yeah, of course that's, that's not what happens, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, she has this confrontation with the other two, but Macy is resolved to kill Jim and Perry and directs the Colonel to get rid of the car. And, uh, Elsa, you know, her, her, her screaming at them, she calls them murderers, murderers, and that wakes Jim up. Uh, and then he rouses, he rouses Perry. So, uh, you know, that ended up, uh, helping them. And we then see the colonel getting rid of Perry's car as Clark is trying to call. So, you know, now Clark, and again, it's like, we're so deep into the episode here. It's like, we're, we're almost done. Uh, but, you know, that's enough to to get him to spring into action, throw off the glasses and fly off. And we got the stock footage of the car going over the cliff and bursting into flames. Because it's a car on television, it has to burst into flames. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's 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 what it does. And then meanwhile, Jim and Perry have, uh, you know, again, they had woken up downstairs. They're back in their room. Uh, and that's when Elsa comes in again, once again with the gun. And, you know, now we get a, f- a few more details about how, uh, you know, there's this, uh, you know, fortune that's been, you know, hidden somewhere in the house. And they've, you know, all been at each other's throats trying to, trying to find it slash kill each other. And... Again, she reveals to them the location behind this like boulder in the basement as long as they you know don't cut her out and and all of that. And that's when we get to that scene that you were referencing where Perry and Jim are, are uh, you know down there retrieving the the loot and she's at the top of the ramp. So there's a ramp down to the basement, but she could never retrieve it herself because then she wouldn't have been able to get back up. And that's when you have mm-hmm. Macy just shove her down and it's quite you know it's quite the shot of her like <laughs> barreling towards the camera there. And then the shot of him standing at the top of the steps, like it was genuinely unsettling. Yeah. Like, like the fact that he pushed this poor woman in a wheelchair down a ramp, God knows what happened to her. Uh, I mean, we eventually find out that she didn't die at least, but he's just, he like, he's done at this point, but then again, he's found out what he needs to find out. He knows where the money is now. Yeah. So, you know, I got the feeling that he was just going to take the money and leave the colonel out of it as well uh, and just take off on his own, uh, which is probably why he sent the colonel to go take care of the car, because then that gives him a better chance to escape. Oh, for you know? sure. What do you think the backstory is? Like, why was it that Elsa was the only one of the three who who knew where where the money was? I just assume is that that's not his mother. Is that an aunt? I mean, is she like George Taylor's sister? Uh, it's just, there's, there, there, I just get the feeling that she is some member of the family that was the only one that he confided in. But now that she's going a little loopy and just refuses, like, I'm surprised they haven't done more to try to get her to talk. Because uh, they obviously have no compunctions about killing people and torturing people. So I am assuming it's on some level, this is like a grandmother or an aunt that Macy has some compassion for that he wouldn't go for, that he wouldn't go all out to get what he, like, he's just eventually, eventually she's going to tell us she's, she's descending further and further into madness. Eventually it's going to come out. So yeah, that, that's, that, that's my thinking on that. Or, but do you think so, but are we sure that they know she knows because I wonder that too. I mean, or has she kept this to herself that she, you know, that she, uh, that she knows where it is. Like clearly that would she make hasn't more told sense them. Then. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, wonder. that would make more sense then. 
I wonder. But you know what? See, here's the thing. I know, obviously, I, I brought up the question, so I have this curiosity. But I, I like that we don't get these answers. You know, there's something yeah. like very, I don't know, sa- like oddly satisfying in, and I guess the mystery of it. Like you don't know the backstory of all of these people. You know, <laughs> these, these maniacs at this at this abandoned hotel bayou. Where do you think the hotel bayou is supposed to be? Where where are they? That they're south or they're they're in the the countryside of metropolis i'm assuming uh i assumed it was called the hotel bayou as it was like a theme hotel mm. like they were making it look like a new orleans uh like hotel and you know that that's their that's their gimmick to get people to stay there uh as as opposed to whatever the name of the hotel that he kept trying to get them to go to um mm because there's better fishing down there and they have electricity and apparently people that can bring you food. Uh, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing, if you like power, and if, food. If, if, <laughs> if you're into any level of comfort, um, I mean, I've stayed into, I've stayed in a couple skeezy hotels in my time. So maybe again, that's another thing that was triggering me through this episode. I was having memories of that hotel in Charlottesville. We stayed at years ago. That was just like, like literally when I, when I joked about sleeping on top of the uh, fully dressed on top of the things, that's what we did and woke up very early to leave because <laughs> it just, everything about it just was upsetting. Gotcha. So at this point, at last, I mean, we had seen him flying, but Superman enters, <clears throat> you know, enters the scene and, and encounters the Colonel outside and Harder had mentioned this in his commentary, and this is something we've been tracking in these episodes. And again, as always, we acknowledge you know they were <clears throat> they weren't aired in the order in which they were shot, and they were shot in batches. And apparently, this was the last one filmed uh, that came up in the commentary. But uh, it, nevertheless, it's always interesting people's reaction to Superman, and when you know when people know him instantly versus when they seem to not have any clue who he is, and. We seem to be in that latter category here, but that, yeah. that tracks, right? Like that, the, that these three <laughs> out, out wherever they are, uh, wouldn't necessarily be dialed into current events and know who Superman is. So, uh, you know, the Colonel tries to lead him away. He says, oh, they're at a cottage. And then he finally gives it up and says, no, they're dead. Um, and then, you know, Superman races back. That's when we get the shot of him jumping and we see the little springboard at the bottom of the frame, which I, I you know, ultimately find charming to see the, you know, the little, uh, you know, to see the seams a little bit uh, every now and then. Um, and Superman enters, and we have that scene that we had talked about before where he faces off with Macy and just grabs him, and we get the line, tell me where they are, or I'll break every bone in your body. And then they have their little well, tussle. Well, even, even before that, when the colonel tries to basically lure him to kill him, and when, when Superman clocks what's going on, there is a, there is a change in George Reeves's demeanor. Like, he's just like, now hold on a second. And then he tries to hit him with the sword. Yeah. And it's just like, at that point, Superman's done. He's done with this entire situation. He's done with trying to be nice about it. And the fact that when he gets in and after he says Macy, he picks Macy up and just deposits him behind that counter. I'm just like, yeah, Superman's done with y'all. You're you're all kind of lucky that he that this one does seem to have a no-kill rule because... If this was if this was a couple decades earlier, you'd be flinging out of windows at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. But it's yeah, it's it's uh, 
it's satisfying. You're ready for these people to to get what's coming to them, and and you know he he finds Jim and Perry and, and Elsa, and then you know we're we're at our wrap up here as the police are carting the evil three away, and Perry has declined a flight back to Metropolis with Superman. He's had enough excitement; it's too much for him, and uh, Jim has to stick with Perry. But Jim asks for a rain check on the flight, and you get this very very warm. Very warm moment between Superman and Jim, or you know, anytime you know you can fly with me, and and we're out of the episode. Yeah, it's kind of a goofy ending to a rather dark episode. Like they're smiling and everyone seems happy, and it's just like, no, Jim, you're going to be waking up screaming for for years after this. I mean, look at what Jim's been through so far this season. He's been put into a safe. He's been put into a watery trap. I mean, people just keep trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far, I know, it's like as far as the the just trauma and probably the need for therapy, <laughs> you know, very much at play here. I, you know, I, like I liked again, I like that warmth between the two of them, but I don't disagree mm-hmm. with you. I think as far as just kind of the tone, it's out of place with the rest of the episode. Now you could look at it as well. We've gotten through all the rest, and so now we have this nice little button. But, and this has come up in a bunch of episodes, I feel like in this first season in particular, I feel like they often struggled with nailing that button and, and the, the, the way out of the episode. And not that it ruins the experience, but I feel like there have been a number of instances, and we've talked about them, where it was just like, it felt like an, an awkward or out of place or, or just kind of like dissonant, uh, you know, little ending to the episode. And I guess they get better as they go along, but some of these in the first season were just like a little, a little wonky, I felt. Yeah, they haven't quite clicked onto the, well, you know, Lois, not everybody can be a Superman wink. Um, where it's just like, the, the episode doesn't really end, it more stops. <laughs> yes, yeah. Like, there, there isn't, like, we get a little bit of Dinama of, thank God Elsa's alive, uh, as they carry her out on the stretcher. And those guys are going to jail, obviously. Um I'm kind of hoping Perry and Jimmy pocketed some of the money. Uh, I think they're owed it at this point, uh, in all honesty. Uh, even though technically, I guess it would be evidence of a murder. <laughs> I mean, at so, least at least for a new a new car with car phone, no less. So that's gonna yeah. Um, yeah when he trashed the car, I'm like, how is Perry going to explain this to the office? It's just like, hey Perry, um, <laughs> did you bring the car back? <laughs> you know, funny story. <laughs> And you're going to laugh. I took it on vacation. You did what? I took it. Okay. I know. I took it on vacation. And then Jim and I were knocked out in a basement by these two crazed hillbillies that were fighting over money. And one of them took and they, they trashed the car. I hope insurance. (laughs) I know it's, it's crazy. It's also, that's a pretty, (laughs) (laughs) Again, <laughs> not to overthink this. It's a pretty drastic step, though, to to just total the car. I mean, we don't know what they're, maybe they had other other means of transportation, but you would almost think they would just hang on to it. They would hide it. You would cover it. You would paint it. You would do something, right? And then that could be your, your getaway. But that's, you know, that's fine. Uh, yeah, because destroying it at least destroys it. And then at no point, you know, if people come to try to find these people, um, 
which if people are asking that many, if you got this old guy just asking that many questions, you'd probably be a little suspicious of who he is in general. Um, but again, this episode has no time for that. No, no. But yeah, I mean, that that's our episode. That's the evil three. This was so much fun to break down. We still have to give our rating. So again, typically we rate this on a scale of one to five fedoras, but uh, for this one, if you would like to do it in terms of fishing rods, I'm I'm, I'm I'm more than game for that. Um, on an objective level, I would give it a three, mainly because Superman just really isn't a huge part of it. Um, like if you're coming to a show for Superman and Super Superman's like literally in a fifth of a 25 minute episode, um, on a you know this is my favorite. I'm going to give it a four mainly because both John Hamilton and Jack Larson sell their parts of the episode. You have really creepy villains uh, that are legitimately dangerous and you get a really great like Superman having enough of everyone's crap, which is kind of like one of the hallmarks of the George Reeves Superman, especially in the first season like, like there's just a point in every episode where he's just done. Uh, and in this case, it was literally, like I said, lifting a man up and not throwing him, more just placing him, which is actually scarier because you could sit like, like you would think that if he threw him, that shows strength. This shows like, like he is that strong that he could take a, a full grown man and just place him somewhere after they struggle for a little bit. <laughs> No, I agreed. Agreed. I'm going to go four and a half for, for me. And it's funny because I've been following Talkville, the Smallville rewatch podcast with Welling and Rosenbaum. And, you know, it's like Welling always kind of frames it in terms of would I, would I show this episode to someone who's never seen the series? Is it a good representation of the show? And if we were to apply that, you know, that, that scale to this one, no, I don't, I wouldn't like give someone this episode. I mean, in, in part, like you said, and as we've discussed, it's very light on Superman. But for me, I'm looking at this more as my enjoyment level and my interest level mm-hmm. in watching this. And look, we've gone through a few recently, the rescue episode or drums of death. Like there have been a few that have been for me, like a little bit of a slog to get through. And this was not like this. I was really, you know, I was really engrossed in this and, you know, again, we've talked about Jim and Perry, and I just love that dynamic. And and Superman, though, you know, though his appearances are fleeting in this, are very impactful. And the whole "I'll break every bone in your body." I mean, that's a moment I will remember. You know, that's like a Superman yeah. moment that now, you know, will will we'll live rent free in my head, as as they say. So again, for all those reasons, I'm going to go four and a half. This was a I really enjoyed this. I, I'm I'm to a certain extent I'm. Hope you don't take offense to this. I'm surprised because you have been you've been really critical of a lot of these episodes, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. Uh, the thing about po- like video casting or podcasting or just doing any kind of critical analysis of anything is that there is a difference between sitting there and watching something, and then when you have to talk about it, you have to do the close reading of it, um, and on and on that level. A, an exam, a personal example is I love the John Byrne era of Superman. When we started doing the show, we noticed there were way too many issues that ended with somebody just info dumping 
like an entire page where it's mostly like word balloons and somebody explaining what just happened. And I didn't notice that the first time, but that's because I wasn't looking for it. Uh, so I, I like appreciate the fact that you're sometimes uh, not hard on the show, but you're, you're objective about it. And I was wondering what your, what your, your reaction to this one. And I am both surprised and delighted that that is your rating. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just I just really had fun watching it. But no, you know, I, I and again, you know, we we both do this on our various shows and everything, and it's yeah, it is different. I hope you know, <laughs> it's funny. Like I hope people, you know, uh, I guess recognize and understand and and appreciate what what you're saying here because yeah, I mean, it's it's never about you know dumping on something, right? But it's like when you are reading or watching something for purposes of what we do it does change it does change how you interact with the material because it's it just becomes you know it's not as passive like there are things i watch that i don't podcast about and i'm still engaged and i'm interested but i'm not i'm not watching or reading with the idea of like oh i have to talk about this for an hour like i need to have <laughs> things to say about it <laughs> You know, and so it's like if I came on here and every episode, oh, this was great. Like, we wouldn't get very far. So and then also doing all of them together. Right. I feel like that, especially now as we're getting deeper into the season, I feel like that's that's probably made me a little bit more critical because it's like I'm doing so many of them in a row. And so um, I I don't know. I feel like that's kind of amplified things a little bit. Whereas if I were just watching one like every now and then it's like, okay, yeah, that was good. But you know, now seeing like some of the stronger ones, I feel like episodes that have more problems stand out because they're like right next to the other mm-hmm. ones. So, yeah, it's the same. Like, uh, on From Crisis to Crisis, we're entering the era of the fourth season of Lois and Clark, and because it's something to do with that era of Superman, we're talking about it. And what I found, uh, and, and I struggled through this through the third season, is that I'm almost excited to talk about the stuff that I like because I don't want it to seem like I'm dumping on something. Um, and just about every, anything you watch in general, there's going to be at least one positive. The problem is, is that the more you like something, it's like the less you have to say about it. Yeah. Uh, Cause there's only so many ways you can say, well, I really liked this. I really liked this. It's almost like when you, don't like it. There's a feeling like you have to justify it. And I know there are people out there that, that podcast and do videos that hate on things. And that's the shtick. That's the audience they're trying to tap into. Um, but I, I, I always appreciate it when somebody's coming at it from a more honest standpoint, uh, which is one of the reasons why when I discovered the show, I was really happy. Uh, and it's why it's, it, it, it's, it's such a thrill to be on it because it's fascinating to hear, uh, you know, and you've had guests of various ages, but mostly it's younger people who came of age, like in the two thousands with Smallville as their, as their linchpin of who Superman is on television. So it's kind of interesting to hear y'all, you go back and watch something that like, isn't even from this century. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's no, no, very, very true. But, uh, but yeah, no, I've definitely, I mean, whether it's with an episode of, of Adventures of Superman or anything else I've covered on, on one of the other shows, it's like, yeah, when, 
when I just love something, it definitely, I definitely go into like, well, okay, well, how, like, okay, what is the conversation going to be like? Because, you know, you want it to be interesting and engaging and it's like, okay, well, like, what can we really unpack here? So, um, but you know, in, in well, there was a lot to unpack about this episode. Yeah. And I feel like this is, I mean, I like, I feel like the sweet spot is when, you know, you, you, because I don't, again, I never, I mean, this is more of an off my conversation, but maybe people find it of interest, but it's like, I never, and you know, this, like, I never take delight in, in picking something apart. Um, but I feel like something like this is a sweet spot where you enjoy it overall. You can kind of question or, or pick apart, like some of the choices. There are things that maybe, you know, don't totally track. And, you know, we, there's just kind of stuff on both sides that you can kind of talk about. So um, in any event, this was a lot of fun. Uh, yes. So again, for your podcast, uh, where would you like to direct folks? Uh, just go to fortressofbailey2.com. Um, there you can find not only from crisis to crisis, uh, but the odd episode of it all comes back to Superman. Uh, the Superman and Lois tapes has been a little sparser this season, mainly because the personal lives of all the hosts have been kind of thrown into chaos. <laughs> My two co-hosts are moving. Uh, in the midst of packing their house and that is stressful and my work my work schedule has been kind of erratic so we haven't been able to do it weekly like we did the the first two seasons Um, which is almost too bad because this season has been so good and there is so much to talk about (laughs) like uh like just just on all levels uh i think they they those writers took on a really heavy subject and I think they've done a really good job with it. Um, so, but there, and there's Batman shows and views from long box, which, uh, there's an archive of that, which is more hodgepodge. But, uh, yeah, if you liked, if you want to hear me blather on about other things, that's where you'll find me. All right. So fortress of Bailey I hope everyone will check that out. And thank you very much. I, you know, again, one of the delights of doing this is, is, is connecting with folks. And, you know, this is now the second time you and I have had the opportunity to yeah. podcast together and, and it's great. So, so I thank you very much. I thank the audience as always for tuning in. We will be back in two weeks with our next all new episode, Adventures Await. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.